I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 145 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. In today's episode of the show, we're joined by guest host again, Richard Hawkins, who is a master mouthpiece craftsman and professor of clarinet at the Oberlin Conservatory. His guest today is Boris Alekverdjan, who is the principal clarinetist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. They discuss his early training, how his love of soccer helped motivate to practice as a student, dealing with nerves in a performance situation, and a whole host of other excellent listener questions that were submitted live. This episode does have the lightning round because we did have time for it, and I chose to leave it in for everyone to listen to today for two reasons. The first is because, again, the audio quality of this recording, because it was done on YouTube, is really, quite honestly, not very good, and I'm quite displeased with this, so uh, all of these YouTube episodes won't be happening anymore. I'll be going back to my typical method, as I've said the previous few episodes, but just to get you up to date in case you haven't been around too much lately, and this is your first time tuning in in a while. But the second reason is I want to give you sort of a preview of what the lightning round is like, and that's because right now I'm running a promotion for the next week. I'll probably extend it a little bit because of the election. I didn't realize it's my promotion was ending on the, the day of the U.S. election, so it'll probably go until November 10th. But right now you can get two months of Clarinet members edition for free if you pay for the year up front. So that means that you're really paying about 80 cents per month to get the Clarinet Extended Edition, which is also ad-free and presented in better audio quality. You can listen on your regular device. And if you're interested in this, you can check it out along with our current 75 other Patreon backers at clarinet.com slash subscribe. This really does help make the show possible each and every week. And I want to thank you even if you just for a moment thought that you might be interested in this but have decided not to support the show because you know what? Even if you're sticking around as a listener, you're still a big part of what makes this podcast possible, and I really do appreciate your support. Of course, I also do appreciate the support of our sponsors. We've got Legere Reads. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Carada Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or head to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. Take your playing to the next level with Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that allows you to pay in Canadian dollars. And for absolutely everyone listening, I have an exclusive coupon just for you. You can save 10% on your next clarinet, accessory, or any other purchase at bakunmusical.com by being a listener of the podcast. Just use code CLARINET at checkout at bakunmusical.com. One last thing before we get started today, you might be wondering what happened to the Clarinet Halloween episode this year. I usually do one and uh, I just looked around and decided that 2020 was scary enough. Let's not scare the listeners with a (laughs) Halloween episode of the podcast this year and just sort of continue on with the normal programming. So if you do want to check that out, though, you're in a Halloween mood and want to listen to some scary Clarinet later tonight, uh, you can check out the previous episodes at Clarinet.com. Now that you've 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 gone through sort of the Russian school of clarinet playing and, and American school of clarinet playing. Are there, are there things that, you know, you see differences in the things that we, that we, you know, that we use as far as, you know, tech, technical passages or etude books and things like that. I feel like nowadays the globalization is becoming, you know, more, more, everything's becoming more globalized. So maybe the differences uh, kind of wash, wash out these, these days. Mm. Uh, back when I was a kid, you know, 90s and early 2000s, um, it wasn't as um, 
as globalized, I, I, I feel like. Um, so I guess the difference is at, when I was studying there um, was maybe a little more um, technical aspect in the Russian clarinet school. So we, we would play lots of scales. Mm. We would play scales every lesson. Mm. We would play uh, lots of etudes and um, um, most of them would be German actually. Mm -hmm. Like Stark and Kropsch, you know. A lot, a lot of German, I think uh, back like in Soviet Union, it was a little bit more um, German influence in Russia. And um, and then in around 70s, I think, actually my teacher was the first one to introduce the German clarinet in, in, oh, interesting. in, in Russia. Uh, sorry, French clarinet in Russia. Uh, but French before clarinet. that, before that, it was all German, German clarinet. So I, I think it, will, it was probably a little more German books of etudes, le less rows, more crops, you know. Uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. mm -hmm. some, some closer, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of scales, a lot of etudes. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side, uh, it was less work on the tone production, mm. less work, less, um, little less um, um, work on the phrasing, um, mm. a little less, like when I was studying there, I didn't know many orchestral excerpts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was it was you who introduced me mostly to orchestral excerpts. Because <laughs> <laughs> back, back then I would, yeah, I would be just playing Francais concerto, you know, and Nielsen concerto and um, etudes and scales, a lot of like solo rap. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came to Oberlin, it was, uh, I looked at a different perspective of how to approach the music from more musical standpoint, from more, you know, sound production standpoint. Um, and um, but, uh, yeah, that's probably would be my answer. And what actually helped me a, a lot when you taught me for these four years at Oberlin is when you said, because, you know, being an artist diploma and performance diploma student, you don't have that many classes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would take soccer and, you know, <laughs> right. uh, swing dancing with Sasha Rattle. <laughs> oh, that's fun. With yeah. Sasha Rattle, right? Yeah. That's right. So I, I, I did have a lot of time to practice and you encouraged me to, to go to the library and just listen to a bunch of American um, um, orchestras play different, different rap. So, mm -hmm. so I, by doing that, you know, I, I kind of had more of an idea of what Chicago Symphony traditionally sounds like, what Cleveland mm -hmm. Orchestra sounds like, what, you know, Boston Symphony sounds like. That, that helped a lot but by listening, by sitting in the library and searching, you know, Beethoven Six played by Stanley Drucker, played by Marsalis, mm -hmm. played by Larry Holmes, you know? Yeah. So knowing that, learning that from you was a huge, huge thing. When you when you experienced that and you were listening to the different orchestras in the states, um, and you're picking up the different nuances of the sounds, the different types of sounds that the different clarinet schools have, um, did you find uh, what? Well, did you find there were differences enough in the way that they sounded that you wanted to pick up little bits of everybody? I mean, was it was it something that as sort of the research, you know, like you, you hear something, you really like it and you want that quality. And then Absolutely. Yeah. you hear another one and you pick it up and there's a, I mean, that's one of the benefits to listening so much to different kinds of, uh, yeah. I think it's really absolutely. Nice. And uh, back in the day, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago at Oberlin, um, YouTube was not as, as, as big as mm -hmm. now. Now you have so many more. I remember you were giving me a little, 
um, uh, like a hard drive. Remember? With, yeah, that's right. That's right. I still have that with all the because it, it wasn't as easy to find recordings. Right. Right. Back back then. Now I think having all the you know Spotify. Sure. In fact, yeah. In fact, it's almost so saturated that I think a lot of students now find it hard to find where to go to find you know right. to hear the the great stuff. I mean, I I, yeah. I find that's something that's very. Uh, you know, you really have to steer everyone in certain directions to find things, you know, because there's so many, so many places people can go to listen, you know. Yeah. Um, so going back a little bit again about talking about your youth, um, you know, what was sort of your biggest struggle when you was a kid on the clarinet? I was quick a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think my, my, um, my chin wasn't, um, um, you know, first couple of years, it wasn't as solid as, uh-huh. Would be so. My dad would be like, "Oh, I don't care how much you're gonna practice. Um, for some people, it takes ten minutes to fix that. For some other people, it takes ten months to fix it. Whatever it takes for you, you just need to. You just yeah. need to. So, so I would squeak on the, you know, over the register, like on B on in C clarinet when I was. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So that that was probably the most challenging thing to stop squeaking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? I mean, you know, everybody does it. It's just part of the clarinet. And, you know, everyone has to understand that that's just, you know, it's one of those things. And, yeah. you know, as many hours as one can put into doing it, and all of a sudden something happens and, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a slip of the, of the finger. And then all of a sudden you think it's something that you're doing physically, you know. So, yeah, it, it, it happens to everybody. So <laughs> everyone just needs to get over that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but one of the other things is, so, so when you were doing that, you know, and you're fixing the embouchure. What what kinds of things do you remember that you actually used in 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 helping you fix that? Um, um, mirror. A mirror. Okay. Yeah, just watching would, yourself. Yeah. yeah, watching myself to you know, so the chin doesn't go up, doesn't move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, but um, you know, it, it's frustrating to go through this. <laughs> and yeah. I remember, I remember my second year or so playing the clarinet. I was. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. This is like, and also at the same time, I was starting to love soccer more and more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my and my dad was that was like around the summer. School was not, you know, school was done at the time. About the same time, uh, May or June, and and I was telling my dad, I don't know if this. I, I keep squeaking. I don't know if it's it's gonna work out. And my dad was actually smart enough to say, I know you love soccer. I know you like you dream to be a soccer player or whatever, but uh, I'll. How about we make a deal here? I'll uh, you'll practice every day this summer for one and a half to two hours, and trying to fix these you know little things, and then mm-hmm. I'll let you play soccer all day long after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, very smart. <laughs> I thought it was a good deal, so I, I would you know, put, put, put my two hours a day from 10, 10 a.m. to to noon, and then go play soccer all day. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think that's what actually, after that summer, I think the progress was made because I would put more hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. When you when you think about that now, like now that you've, you know, you've you've done so much orchestral work now and and um, what are the things that you feel like you really are working on now as a professional? Like right now during the coronavirus? Well, just in general, without talking about that necessarily, you know, like when you're in the orchestra or, or just in life in general, you know, your, your busy schedule. Normal yeah. schedule. Uh, well, I do try to play some 
technical things that kind of keep keep me going. Mm-hmm. I, I do try to play some etudes mm-hmm. almost every day. Um, when you're working full time, you know you you don't have that much time to practice. So you kind mm-hmm. of you, you kind of your practice kind of shrinks to something that you can do within an hour, really quick. Um, just whatever I need to work on, I work on. <laughs> and yeah. uh, compared to now, I have a lot of time, right? So I actually. Yeah actually keep asking you for more music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what inspires you like in this time, you know, what are the things that sort of get you going every day to, to practice? I, I just have more time. So I, I just, uh, I start learning new pieces that I've never, never had time to learn. Yeah. So, so what's on your stand today? Uh, I've been looking at um, Traviata fantasy. Nice. Right. Uh, Carmen fantasy by Rosenblatt is Russian composer. I have a uh, paper grand duo that I want to record at some, some, time, some point. Um, I have Rose. You I don't know. know if anybody knows, but I don't know if anybody knows. But I think you have it somewhere is that the Gustav Langinus uh, grand duo uh, concertant duet for two clarinets. Have you ever seen that before? I've never seen it. So Gustav Langinus, of course, was one of the other sort of method books that we we have that we use a lot of times. And there's mm-hmm. several different things that if you remember that one, that's out of the Langinus book. And Langinus, um, so happened his son went to Oberlin. And when Langinus uh, came here and George Wallen was the clarinet teacher for a long time and, and um, Langinus came to do a semester teaching at Oberlin and and then his son came to school here years later um, and then I think it was the late 50s mm-hmm. when Langinus uh, passed away he gave all of the his dad's music to Oberlin so we we have these archival um, sort of uh, duets you know the, the two Brahms sonatas and then there's the Grand Duo Concertant all in, in the actual re- original edits yeah. um, if anybody wants them let me know I can get them to you because they're not I don't they believe be they're great. published I'm not sure they're published anymore but um, yeah so that kind of stuff on your stand is great it's a lot of fun actually to, mm-hmm. to, to play that play yeah. music now I, I know that when you're also a student you really um, became really involved with chamber music and, and you started a group here at Oberlin and I think within a couple of years, it won the fish off competition that, that, that year. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you now that you're, you know, a professional orchestral musician, you know, how, how are you managing doing? Cause I know you'll do a lot of chamber music. So how do you manage doing that in, in your life? Yeah. I, I personally love playing chamber music. It's probably, I hate to say it, but it's probably my favorite thing. <laughs> My favorite. That's um, okay. That's okay. Um, you know, I was being at Oberlin um, for these four years was probably one of the best four years in my life. Um, to learn from you, to learn from my colleagues, to meet as many good friends that I'm still friends with. Best friends that I have are from Oberlin. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to meet my. Um, future colleagues, you know, chamber music colleagues that we, 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 we were just friends who decided to, okay, why, why not play some chamber music together? So mm-hmm. we formed a group this way, not by taking, you know, a chamber music class or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We just, we were just really close friends and decided to play together. And that, that's something that those kind of relationship you, you treasure all life. Mm. 
um, all your life. And um, yeah, we started playing together. It was Farhad and Anastasia at the time. And um, I think it was going well. And then we decided to take the, to participate in the official competition. And you and Milan Vitek were, and Sedmara were our coaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great team of coaches. And, uh, In fact, I wanted to let you know, just last night, we had a, a sort of honors banquet and Milan just retired. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so, yeah. Congratulations. I mean, to, to him for that. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, this was a wonderful time. We started playing together. We love, love doing that. We took the Greyhound bus to, um, to Indiana. <laughs> Because back in the day, we didn't have much money. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And then when we actually won the grand prize, uh, Oberlin provided a limousine service for us. <laughs> 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 so that, that was exciting. Um, we, we still play together. Farhad is now a conductor. So we have a new violinist, um, Gulia. We still play together. It's uh, not as many concerts as, uh, as before, I would say, but we're still, still uh, active. Have you guys um, done some commissions and things like that? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. Oh. But uh, when we played with Farhad, he composed the piece for us. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I still play. I, I try to play as much of chamber, as many chamber music pieces as possible. It's well, such an important yeah. part. It's an important part of our repertoire. You know, I yeah. think it's it's such a an amazing, um, absolutely heightened experience. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm as sure much that, as I, can, I try to do. Yeah, and I'm sure that even playing in the orchestra with that experience, it helps you, you know, um, gain relationships with others in the orchestra and, and be able to to maneuver your way into the, the sure. different orchestral music. Yeah. Um, in in I've asked this of a lot of uh, our our guests, but um, now that you're you're older and you're sort of more uh, stabilized, you know, in your professional world. Um, are there things that you have discovered in your own playing that you didn't know that you did before, or it's something that a, a technique that you've you've discovered that maybe is different from from other players and or students that you see? Anything that you've disco- discovered? I, I don't know. I, I think I was um, lucky to have pretty good technique. From, uh-huh. From uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I. Um, I was able to like, you know, learn how to double tongue and circular breathe at the early age. So uh-huh. it's a little easier to do it when you're young, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. than, than, um, than when you're in your thirties, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I was a little, I was lucky to be, <laughs> to be able to do those, those little tricks. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's good. As, uh, as older I get, I actually, I feel like uh, some fingers are getting a little slower. <laughs> Uh-huh. It happens. Like my, my third finger in the left hand is getting a little bit slower, so I I kind of try to to find the um, etudes, etudes uh-huh. to to make sure that finger is is active. You know, mm-hmm. that's great. Um, yeah, it's important that we do that. Otherwise, you know, yeah. you you can take a few days off, which I think can be good. You know, like sometimes it's it can be healthy to get away from the instrument. And then when you come back, it can feel sort of refreshed and, and, but you have to get right in there and start digging into those That's kinds right, of yeah. that work. Otherwise you'll start to feel things that yeah. are uneven and things like that. Yeah. yeah. When, when you, um, I know you're probably doing a lot of recording with LA um, and I've always seen you with um, pretty solid 
you know, nerves. Like I never thought that you had nerves like others do. Do you feel them at all? I, I'm nervous. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about that. Like, how do you deal I, with that? I, I, like everybody else, I get nervous. Um, mm-hmm. Depends on also what you play, um, you know, what pieces, what, what environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I get nervous, but somehow I usually I'm able to um, you know, tell myself to kind of come down and, mm-hmm. and do, do what I'm, do what I can do. You know, do what I, I'm able to do, and um, it's kind of, kind of a mental preparation right before you go on stage, I guess. Yeah. So, like a routine. Do you have a routine that you that you have before you go on stage? Not really a routine. I just play like right before going on stage. I play something really slowly. I don't really have a routine. Um, I just, for me, it's um, sometimes I, when I get really nervous. It's the um, I, my. Um, um, air is is a little different my uh-huh. so i the number one thing that i tell myself to remember is to for audition or performance to um really use your um you know st- stomach muscles and a little kind of control air because i think mm-hmm. if i if i control the air right the embouchure and and fingers are do are going to do what they need to do yeah the so number one thing for me would be to like concentrate on and to make myself less nervous would be if I control the air, the rest will follow, you know, kind of. Yeah. That was always, always something I was so, uh, I admired so much about Larry Combs and that, that he was in such an amazing control of air all the time. And it, it, you know, it's one of the things to me that made him so special in that he could pick out different kinds of instruments you know not a lot of people know this but through the 90s you know the chicago symphony was playing german clarinets mm-hmm. and uh on the same concert as french clarinets you know so they would have german repertoire they'd play german clarinets and on french repertoire they'd switch back mm-hmm. and that was something for him that was always so easy like he could just pick up any instrument it could be german clarinet french clarinet or early clarinet and and be able to immediately start playing yeah. instruments so well but i i attribute a lot of that for him was because he had such incredible control of his air so i think that's a great that's a great topic to talk about just because it's it's an important thing it helps with nerves it helps with fingers yeah. you know and all that stuff yeah. yeah because the first thing when we get nervous is uh, we start biting we start like playing fingers are playing faster than they should be you know so mm-hmm the air is kind of like a an engine of everything and then everything kind of fall, falls into yeah. the right, right direction usually works with me that's good so when you're going out and doing master classes and and teaching uh, you know um youth on the clarinet um are there things that you find yourself talking about most often it's air yeah. <laughs> it usually is usually okay. air, yeah yeah, yeah. Is there anything else that you find that you talk about a lot? Um, I try to help. You know, I try to help them on the spot. Where everybody's, each of us have different issues to work on. So I try mm-hmm. to try to um, point out the issues that that specific student needs to work on most. If it's a embouchure moving too much or fingers, you know, not balancing right and left hand or things like that. I guess it depends on the exact you know situation of each. Sure. Team. But sure. air, air, I would say the most. 
Uh-huh. Um, and I know that you've just started uh, working at uh, UCLA as well. And, um, you know, um, I'm sure you had a lot of uh, sort of recordings to listen to for prospective students and things like that. You know, do you have any any advice for the young players now or the things that, that you hear when you're listening to prospective students? Um, try to... Um, <laughs> Recording device is important. Sometimes, you know, you, they, they would submit a recording on a really, really bad recording um, uh, quality-wise. Mm -hmm. I think um, the um, recording itself does make you sound better mm -hmm. if, if it's a good quality recording. Um, just, just do your best. Just don't play beautiful sound, you know, don't rush regular things <laughs> mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. try to try to um, um, put the music through so it speaks to, to whoever is listening to, to mm -hmm. it. Do you find, um, you know, when you're hearing young players, um, do you find yourself listening to yourself at the same time? Like, meaning like, you know, how was I when I was 17? Yes, yeah. always. It's interesting, right? I mean, that's always, something that yeah. I think we all do that. And I think, you know, it's not a it's not a comparison game necessarily. It's just that you're you're trying to find where the bar is and you're trying to see where everyone fits into certain levels and things like that, experience levels basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I, I, I find myself doing that too. Like um, and especially with some of the young players now that are just fantastic players out there. I mean, there's, it's really incredible to see like the, the, the differences of, of, of the youngest players on the clarinet now, uh, as, as opposed to even 20 years ago, you know, it's yeah. very, very interesting. And I think a lot of it actually is just, you know, the social, uh, aspect of it in that, and that a lot of, a lot of people are looking at different recordings and finding things yeah. they really get inspired about, uh, uh, through, through, uh, YouTube and various other means. Um, it's really, it's really sure. exciting. Um, I guess one more thing I was still thinking of previous question. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Re record yourself as much as you can, you know, mm. and and try to fix the things that in the original um, recording wasn't quite right. So I, I would record myself if I prepare for a big um, audition or uh, solo competition. I would record quite a bit because mm -hmm. and then listen to it from a perspective of you are the judge. Like you're not listening to your own plane, but you're actually judging that person. Yeah, I mean, we are definitely our best critics, right? I mean, yeah. I think listening to ourselves all the time is really, really important. Um, yeah. So in your experiences, you know, working with so many different people across the world now, um, chamber music and orchestrally and solo works, you know, you've done quite a few concertos all over the place, um, different conductors, different players. Um, are there moments of advice that you have heard from other people that you remember as being really important things that, you know, uh, that you think about all the time? Um, just, uh, yeah, be yourself. Mm. Um, don't try to copy anybody. Um, um, just, you know, put the, as much musicality into each performance as you can. 
Yeah. Passionate. Yeah. Passionate. Exactly. That's a good one. Yeah. When you were going from, you know, uh, basically, I think you started Kansas City and then you went to the Met. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like to you, like going from, you know, being in a on a big stage and then and then being in the pit? Yeah, um, it's it was challenging because you know in Kansas City we would play some operas during the year, but not as as many, um, not as much as I wish. Um, so going from stage to the pit, it changes your perspective a little bit. You know you. You can sit however you want. You know, you, you don't look, you don't need to you don't need to worry about how you look. So it, it, that that's a good aspect, I think. <laughs> you, just, you, you just truly um, concentrating on 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 your music, on, on what you do, um, and also being at being in the mat at the mat is more like playing chamber music, believe it or not, because mm-hmm. you're constantly your ears are constantly listening to what's going on on stage, to what's going on in the orchestra. Um, so it's like a, it's like chamber music in um, you know huge setup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and obviously you know the hours of when you when you used to play in a symphony forty five minute Brahms symphony and and um, that's it you know uh, playing Meister Singer six hours that's just a, um, trying um, it's just a different pace you know how you. How many reads do you use during a six-hour opera? How, how, uh, what kind of? It's like a more organized process going going through it, um, and it just you, you get used to it. But at, at the beginning, it was a little challenging, you know. <laughs> to and, and learning all the rap was, I would listen to a lot of, a lot of stuff on YouTube, on Spotify, on Matt Matt's opera website, you know. Yeah. To, to get the to get the tradition to get the. How, how they do it, how each other opera orchestra does it. So just knowing knowing the operas, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. half of them I didn't even know, you know? Yeah. yeah. But uh, I remember going back home to Moscow and practicing. Um, well, my first operas were um, La Boheme, uh, Traviata, Cosi Fan Tutte, I remember. And, and my, my dad was in, in the, um, 10 years in the opera theater orchestra. So he would be telling me actually like, oh yeah, there's in, in this page, there's another solo you should look in, <laughs> into. So that was, <laughs> that was actually very helpful. <laughs> he, he helped me quite a bit actually with, with that rep as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, did and then feel, I was going to ask you, do you, did you feel um, a growth in your musicality, you know, just playing that repertoire? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It, uh, yeah, um, you know, each step of my career, I feel, I feel like I, I learned so much. Uh-huh. I learned a lot having a full-time, you know, job in Kansas City, my first full-time job. I learned a lot there for four years. Then I moved to the Met. I learned more. Then I moved to LA. I learned more. You you, you just learn from your colleagues, from mm-hmm. experiences, from conductors. It's it's. I think it's a process that never ends, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely, I mean, I think we are all um, sort of reassessing what we do every day and, and, and those experiences can only add to the sort of the excitement of what we do. Um, mm-hmm. When you, um, so then when you went to LA um, and, and sunny LA, <laughs> um, 
did you find, you know, that, that big shift now going back from the pit into the, the big stage? So, somehow um, that shift was easier. Okay. <laughs> Uh, going to the Met was um, more challenging than, uh-huh. than go- coming to, from the Met to LFA. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I only spent three years at the Met. You know, I, mm-hmm. I still remembered what it's like to be on stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I think maybe when you spend uh, more years at the Met, like my colleague uh, Whitney spent like 12 years at the Met, that, that's going back to the symphony orchestra is a little bit... It's a little bit of an um, adjustment, mm-hmm. but in, in my case, it wasn't so much because also during the Met, I would play, um, we would play like several concerts in Carnegie Hall. Right. Uh, we, I, I would do like summer festivals, you know, like symphonic festivals. So it, it, somehow it wasn't um, as challenging from the Met to LA feel as from Kansas City to the Met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any exciting projects coming up in the next, you know, year or two? Um, year or two. Well, I was supposed to premiere a new clarinet concerto, ah. <laughs> Ukrainian composer Alexei Shore mm-hmm. in Malta. Oh, in wow. Germany. So that hopefully will be rescheduled. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of piece is it? It's a, it's like a easy on the ear kind of um, you uh-huh. know, new piece, but easy on the ear. Big orchestra, chamber orchestra? Uh, big orchestra, yeah. Uh-huh. Big, Great. Pretty big orchestra. About 20 minutes, three movements. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully that will be rescheduled some at some point, maybe next yeah. season or season after. Uh-huh. Um, as long as like n- near future, I'm I'm teaching at the festival, yeah, a virtual festival at uh, Philadelphia Music mm-hmm. uh, International Music Festival at the end of June, online, you know, um, yeah, things like that. Recording a little project for LA Phil. <laughs> Good, good. Like that. I mean, I think it's important that everyone start connecting, you know, these these online summer festivals, you know, and talking about that just because, um, and I think that the um, Clarinet Jobs site is putting together a list of things just for people to see and be involved with for the summer. So um, a little plug in for them because um, I know they're working on that. Um, yeah. So it's wow! It's such a pleasure. It's already been time, but and I think we've Sean's going to come back in with some questions. Okay. I think from from uh, from the from Facebook. So um, what a pleasure having you, Boris! And thank, thank you, you so thank much. you for having me. Yeah, such a pleasure. Hi, Sean. Right, yeah, thank you both. Hey, I'm back. I told you I wasn't going far. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you both so much for, for coming on and, and for taking part in this. You know, I just think it's so interesting to listen to people chatting who have a rapport already. And, you know, those of us listening, I think we forget sometimes that the music world and especially the clarinet world, like it's a pretty tight knit, tight community. And there's a lot of relationships that, that go on amongst people and, and uh, you know, past and present, really. So we've got some great questions here that have been sent in. If you have any last minute ones, I've actually got three screens going here. So I feel like I'm flying a spaceship or something. But um, if you're if you got some more questions to post, you could do that in the chat in the uh, on the Facebook here. Um, I got my questions here. And then there we go. We're all ready. So the first one, I actually had a question pop into my head while um, you guys were talking about the, the different cities that you've lived in. And that is, how do you deal with your clarinet in different climates? Because moving from New York to LA, for example, that's a pretty big transition. And I imagine there's a lot to learn about reeds and clarinet. And I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. 
Yeah, um, it's a, a bit challenging, obviously, especially with the cold winter at Oberlin or New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, you, can, you kind of learn how to, you know, prepare your reads ahead of time. Um, I know we're not supposed to talk of the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> I have this uh, case that's a humidity controlled case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps a lot when I travel. If I go from, you know, you know, 70 degree weather in LA to 20 degree weather in Colorado. That that helps me a lot. I, I keep my reads inside the case, and mm-hmm. this way reads don't change as much. So the case helps the just the experience of preparing your reads for a specific environment for for altitude or for cold. You, you know, usually you use a little harder reads when it's colder. You use softer yeah. reads for altitudes and yeah, things like that. Well, that was my next question. You're talking a lot about air support and developing the airstream. Um, have you found that this is different um, in different altitudes and, and places that you've lived? Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, not necessarily, not so much in places I live, but in altitude, of course, you're shorter on your air. So that's yeah. <laughs> more challenging. <laughs> totally. So the next I question here, this, this is from, I, oh, sorry, I go ahead. Sorry, I remember the very first time I went to uh, South America and I played the Mozart concerto, of course, the Mozart concerto. And it was the, like, got off the plane, I had my first rehearsal with the Colombian Philharmonic in, in Bogota. And it was, no one had ever talked about altitude with me, like ever. And I had no idea. So I started playing and it was like, duh, 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 dee, duh, duh, duh. like I was breathing like constantly, you know, it was, oh my gosh. It, it, suddenly I was like my read, you know, I was like immediately starting to work on my reads. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. How are you supposed to know until you experience it or unless <laughs> someone true. tells you, right? That's true. That's <laughs> it's kind true. of hard to explain without actually trying it too. Like someone can tell you all day about it, but until you've actually been there doing it, it's kind of all it's speculation, true. right? I actually so, have a, I actually have a, a box of reads, a, a case of reads, always in my in my uh, case for mm-hmm. altitude, anything out five thousand and up. <laughs> nice, really. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I once I heard of a read for like. 18 months in there. <laughs> wow. That's great. <laughs> I once heard of a player who would keep different reads in different cities so they would stay acclimatized in the different regions, which is kind of a, a neat idea. But I guess you can't play them much when they're not in your house. <laughs> yeah, surprise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's see what they're like today. So the next question here is from Christopher, and he has a really great question. So last time Anthony McGill was talking a bit about going beyond learning just the technique and getting into the music. Um, how do you determine the amount of time spent practicing technical aspects of playing versus the musical aspects of playing? Good question. That's, that's a difficult question. It is, yeah. Um, I'd say probably about half-half. Mm-hmm. For me, do you feel like they're kind of one and the same, though? Maybe that's why it's a difficult question. It, it's hard um, to... Yeah, so, some, some pieces would, you know, automatically have them both. So you don't need to specifically work on technical and then musical. So you kind of work work on it together. So mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah, it's kind of like a balanced concept, I guess. Love it. So this next question is from Joel. Um, not related to the clarinet, so we'll see what comes out. I'm interested. What other subjects did you study at Oberlin and what interests outside of clarinet do you have? Except soccer and the swing, uh, swing dance. Besides soccer, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I was uh, fortunate, you know, to sp- uh, to do a lot of um, chamber music and orchestra and wind ensemble, uh, contemporary music ensemble. I think it was called, mm-hmm. uh, with Team Weiss. Um, I, I, I've been I've been playing a lot at Oberlin, and I was um, 
it, it helped a lot. Uh, was there anything outside of clarinet you were doing there, or yeah, because I was, since I was an artist diploma and performance diploma, they, you know, I didn't take any mu music history or music theory because I already mm. done it at, at Moscow Conservatory. So my my studies were primarily mostly, um, um, you know lean towards the performing part, part of it. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you're that's, that's why I love these four years the most. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. You're, it reminds me a bit of when I'm out at clinics and stuff. And, and one of the things I ask kids when I go around is, you know, tell me your name and just to break the ice, you know, tell me a bit about yourself. What else do you do outside of band? And then they ask me at the end, what, what else do you do? I'm like, well, in addition to clarinet, I have a clarinet podcast. <laughs> I work for a clarinet company and oh, that's a lot of clarinet. <laughs> Um, my, my favorite stuff in college was poetry classes because it was so oh, really? linked to music and, and sentences and structure of sentences and, and thinking about that in a musical way. I always really, I really thought that that was an important part of my college time too. Yeah. That's very cool. I had someone tell me once that one of the best things they did as a vocalist was take uh, German and French courses because they're constantly doing that. Someone's written a message in Russian here. I wish I could read it. I don't know what it's, <laughs> what it's saying. Um, my wife can read those words, but I'm sorry I can't. <laughs> so the next question here, it says, um, how did you develop your incredible tonguing? And that's from Omar. Um. I don't know. <laughs> practice, practice. Uh, well, uh, double tonguing. I would be. Um, I would actually. I. I would spend two, three months to to develop that because you you want your uh, throat you know, um, tonguing to be as strong as the tongue. So mm. you would you would squeak a lot on playing scales just with the ka 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 with with that sound, and obviously it's you would squeak a lot and then you would. Start doing taka taka taka. So so that that's that I actually practiced. I never really practiced my single tongue. Mm. I think I was just somehow lucky to have that from the beginning. I, I don't know. But uh, double tongue, and I, I was working on when I was uh, 14, 15, somewhere there. Well, I think you make a good point. I mean, some people have a natural kind of aptitude for certain parts of playing and some people just, they, they seem to have more difficulty. So I think sometimes different ways to explain things are, um, but sometimes you just got to get in there and, and start working, like you say, but about the double tonguing, do you think that the, the are you using the syllable car or do you change to kind of a good sound? Because I've heard other people say that yeah. it can be really helpful to to kind of de-emphasize the, the... Yeah, daga, daga, or taka, yeah. both kind of work. Um, um, I guess as long as uh, back to the single tongue, and I think playing the Stark and you know all this German uh, etudes kind of put me on that, or uh, automatically made me sound better on the single tongue. And I think because because the Stark and the Kropsch uh, etude books have a lot of tongue exercises in them. Um, yeah. And well, I think what helps too is listening to the end of the note. Like a lot of people are focused articulation only on the beginning of the sound, but it's both sides of the, the note, right? So if you can get in there and think about it that way, maybe. And another thing that sometimes I think of instead of uh, tonguing, uh, like, you know, this is the reed, this is your tongue, instead of tonguing the reed, you kind of like more like a pizzicato kind of thing. Yeah, I describe it like touching a really hot stove just to see if it's yeah. on. You don't, you don't just yeah. put your whole hand. <laughs> You're gonna just kind of tap, right? Yeah, a little bit more like this instead of yeah. actually, actually hitting. But yeah, it's not about hitting the reed. It's about stopping the airflow and yeah. coming back from the reed, right? Yeah, so that, totally. I think that concept makes it a little faster if you think of that way. Instead yeah. of actually, actually tonguing it. 
Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and trying, totally. Trying to work on the um, tongue and exercises that that uh, cover as many registers as possible. So, so you could you could sound you know similar on each register. So you you kind of sound like a keyboard. So it, it, it so it's not like oh you have to adjust for higher register and then readjust for lower. So it sounds very even even. <laughs> Well, I think this kind of opens up an interesting side topic. A lot of people, I think, feel that um, people who've reached a very high level in playing, that they have some kind of secret weapon to share. And sometimes I'm, I'm not sure if that's really true. I think it's a lot of experience, a lot of playing. As you say, your, your main tip here, I, from, from my perspective, was play in all the registers and get used to it, right? And that really is kind of maybe what people need to try and try and do if they can is there's no one secret to anything in music i think <laughs> i think you kind of <laughs> yeah. get as much information and see what works for you for you if someone does find sauce or weapon or whatever do tell me but send me an email no don't yeah. <laughs> don't post it on here <laughs> i think one of the other things to think about too is the fact that we we tend to avoid the stuff that's hard for us yes and, yeah and if they're you know, that's the stuff that we have to work on to get better at. And yeah. and a lot of times, you know, students, I find they they will get in the practice room and practice all the stuff that they love doing and or they do really well. And yeah, that's really it builds your confidence. But at the same time, you have to spend that extra time working on the things that, you know, you don't do well. That's right. Well, and you know, that goes back to the very first question, which was spending time between technical and, and musical. Maybe what that could mean is, is making sure that half your lesson, or sorry, half your practice time, you don't sound as great as the, the first stuff, because you're working on stuff that's harder, right? Um, I'm personally guilty of exactly that. There's a reason that after five years of noodling around on bass guitar, I'm not actually a great bass player. I, <laughs> I tend to just play my favorite songs and, and the technique book collects dust on the shelf, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so um next question here this is from mary bacoon she says can you please share your thoughts on playing clarinet in the opera medium as a means of expression that has unique rewards opera medium register um playing in the opera as a as a I'm medium i think she opera. means yeah. yeah like as a genre um well uh, the opera honestly has one of the most beautiful solos <laughs> i think in the clarinet literature so I actually um, try to give my students those opera books and opera CDs that you, ac- uh, you actually introduced me to at Oberlin. <laughs> mm-hmm. I still have that CD and uh, I send it to my students to, to, um, to learn that because not, a lot of us still, you know, they, we graduate from college, we don't know the opera excerpts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, to me, it's one of the most, you know, I mean, most wonderful solos ever written. Um, it's more, it's somehow, again, it's more intimate mm-hmm. playing, playing in the opera. It's more intimate for, to me. It's more like a chamber music kind of feel versus playing a Brahms symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Good answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's really, um, it is the, one of the highest forms of expression I think is opera music and, and because it's so related to singers and which is such a, you know, humanistic thing. And, and we're always trying to uh, have the clarinet feel that way, right? It's sort of our ultimate goal to make it feel that way. And I, I think uh, Mary's question is really great. I mean, I, I, I think that's really, um, it's very difficult to do, but I would imagine that when you're in the situation, you have a certain kind of freedom 
in it that you may not have when you're playing in orchestral music. Yeah. It's just a different kind of team. Yeah. Right? Well, I think it's probably easier just because of the medium too to personify the characters and emotions sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, and the clarinet, you're right, it's such a vocal instrument that it blends well with the with the genre. So that's interesting. One, interesting one of the question. best comments I've ever get would would be, um, you know, oh, it reminded me of, of reminded me of the human voice. You know, yeah. one of the yes. We, we to try to imitate that. In some languages, I'm not sure about Russian, maybe you will let, can let me know, um, but in some languages, the word for singing and playing is actually the same word. That, has that oh, is that the same in Russian? or Because in Romanian, oh. you know, I'm pretty sure that it is, yeah. We, we have both words. <laughs> <laughs> you have both words. <laughs> Excellent. So this is an interesting question here. I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, Jasmine says, any suggestions for prog progressive repertoire lists? Like, I guess she's looking to work from easier things up to harder mm -hmm. things, if I interpret that right. Um, as far as the pieces go, I always, if, if I have somebody, you know, in high school or younger than that, I would always put them on like Rabo or Messager or Concertino before, before I move into Weber Concerto or Spor Concerto, you know? So it's, Small, smaller pieces like like I love French pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. French pieces that are written for the Paris Conservatory competition. Mm -hmm. Any of those work great. <laughs> like Rabot or Messager, great, great pieces for like high school level. Okay. And then I would move. You know, I, I love those homages by Belakovich, mm -hmm. things like that. And then you move to harder things like sport concertos, like. Um, uh, pieces like Debussy or Vidor and stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say Premier Rhapsody, I think, is one of the yeah. archetypal examples of that one. That one's tough, though. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, there's another question here, and I'm actually sure if this is relevant, so you can let me know. Um, but this is from Roy. He says, Boris, do you have anything to say about double lip embouchure and what resources you'd recommend? So do you use double lip in your day-to-day -day playing? Uh, I don't. No, but okay. I, I, sometimes I uh, just try reads on, on it just to... Just to see what it's a good a good tool to to um, try and to make sure you're not uh, biting too much. So I don't really I don't really perform with double lip, but sometimes I would like try things double lip. Yeah. Practicing tool or something yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. So these last couple things here, Richard, you've done this before on the Clarinet Podcast here. So these are just going to be for Boris, if that's okay. Yeah. It's called the lightning round, and um, they're all just quick questions to be answered in just a couple of sentences. So we'll rock it through those. And then we are at the end of this conversation. So before we do do that, I want to thank both of you again for coming on. And thanks to all who tuned in, all who asked questions. We have had a lot of people coming in and out of this conversation. And we're currently still at around, I think, 60 or 80 people. So that is excellent. So thanks for sticking around for the entire chat here. Lots of Lots of great things we learned today, I think. So this is the lightning round. So Boris, what piece of music, album, or performance changed your life most profoundly? Copeland Clarinet Concerto. Nice. If you could play any other instrument in the clarinet, which would it be and why? I always liked the bassoon. The bassoon. Oh, interesting. I think that's the first time someone's answered that on here. Or cello. Something with the cello. lower. Yeah, yeah. Bass clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count. Um, what is something about you or something that you like to do that I'd never think to ask or would never guess? Um, something interesting. I, love, that... I think I mentioned it, but I, I love playing soccer. Soccer? Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Um, what is one strategy you use in your day-to-day life to achieve success, like a routine or a habit or um, soccer, maybe? <laughs> I don't, I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> Get up early, glasses. clean your special glasses. things, <laughs> special <laughs> coffee <laughs> additives. <laughs> I don't really drink coffee, really, we've done that. You don't drink coffee. Oh, maybe that's the trick. You drink it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, and so this next part is kind of like a time machine. We're going to go back in time a little bit. Um, if you could relive the greatest moment of your career so far, which would it be and why? Mm, I don't know greatest moment of my career, but I remember um, several times in my life when I achieved something and I, I got goosebumps from mm. Yeah, um, yeah. That would be, that would be uh, getting accepted to Oberlin, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then when I won um, uh, my first job, yeah. Kansas City job, and and the Met. Those were like three three moments when I when I received the news, I got goosebumps. So I guess mm-hmm. those three moments that I mm-hmm. I um, most cherish, I guess. Yeah. I love that just kind of like anticipation for the yeah. times ahead. Um, what is what you kind of talked a little bit about this? So maybe we can skip it. But what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were twenty-one, or when you were younger, mm. as a kid? Uh, mu- musically, right? Yeah, musically, or or life advice, whatever. Um, mm. That's a hard one. <laughs> he's, not old, he's not old enough to ha- answer that question yet. I guess. Uh, <laughs> Try to be as uh, as um, nice, as friendly, as um, um, you know, to other people. Mm-hmm. To to be um, as collegiate and as uh, collegial as uh, nice to other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you're young, you know, you you think um, you allow yourself to be a little more expulsive. Is that a good word? Yeah, totally. So um, um, just being smart, being um, um, trying to be nice to everybody. Love that. And you mentioned some times with your father telling you, you, you know, you could play soccer all afternoon if you practice and stuff, but what was your very first musical memory? Do you recall? Um, yeah, my dad playing actually, my dad practicing at home, all the operas, opera exits. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and then uh, Tosca's. <laughs> and the last question is if you could go back in time and meet any musician, who would it be? Uh, Bernstein. Bernstein. Oh, nice. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on. I can't believe it, but somehow we've managed to end right on the nose at uh, two o'clock here Pacific. So that is a prodigious act in itself that we were able to to do that. But um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. For those listening, if you missed the beginning or the middle, um, you can check this out in a couple of days. It will be airing on the Clarineat YouTube page. So you can check that out at youtube.com slash Clarineat. And again, thank you both for taking the time. Any last words before we go? Thanks, for Thanks me. to everybody. Thank you very much. Have a great day and stay safe out there. Thanks for joining me here on the Clarinet Podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time. We'll have an episode between Richard Hawkins and Stephen Williamson of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and that is part three of four of the Clarinet Master Series. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening from and whatever device you're listening on so that future podcast episodes will make their way to your device for free as soon as they're released. If you did enjoy the show today, please do tell your clarinet friends about it, and be sure also to check out the Patreon edition, or the Members edition as I call it, which is available 
available from as little as $1 per month at clarineat.com slash subscribe. If you've listened to this point in the episode, you honestly are not only the target audience for this type of extra content, but you're also the listener who will enjoy it the most. So it really is right up your alley. And if you've been thinking to yourself, man, $1 is just way too much to pay for this amazing content that I get for free on my device every month. (laughs) Um, You'd be thrilled to know that I'm actually running a promotion right now where if you pay for the year up front, you actually get two months free. So what this means is that you'll get 12 months of Clarineat for just $10. That's about 80 cents per month or around 20 cents per episode. So I think it's got to be one of the best deals going. If you do value the Clarineat podcast and the lessons you learn here, think about how much a lesson with any of these people would cost, um, even to take part in a group class and then imagine only paying 20 cents for that while you're listening to the show. It's a pretty great deal. I hope that you will interpret it as a good value towards your life. And also, I I know sometimes too people say that they like to listen to the podcast while, you know, driving to work or enjoying a cup of coffee or those kind of things. That's almost the same price as one Starbucks cup of coffee here in Canada. So <laughs> you can you can now get a year of Clarinet for the price basically of a large latte in Canadian dollars. Isn't that crazy? Well, anyways, humor aside, thanks so much for considering supporting the show. If you do want to do that, you can head to clarinet.com slash subscribe and become one of our 75 Patreon backers. You know, we actually have some extra special Patreon backers who I cl- quickly want to thank here. I'm just pulling it up on my phone and to be honest it's Halloween so as I'm doing this I'm watching out the corner of my eye and I notice that someone looks like they're trying to come to my door so uh we'll have to see if that happens I may have to pause this recording and (laughs) and come back here in one second but uh let's find the list of Patreon backers who we need to give extra thanks to here one second all right here we are so we have Robert W Andrew M David S Debbie A Glenn K Jason S Josh N Karen D, Miguel D, Patty S, William L, and that looks like it for right now. But thank you so much to all of you gold members within the Patreon community for supporting the podcast at $10 per month or more. You're really going a long way to helping me make this show possible for listeners all around the world. Of course, thank you also to our sponsors, Bakun Musical Services. You can get 10% off your next clarinet or accessory purchase at bakunmusical.com. This is a great savings even if you're just considering buying a barrel or a mouthpiece. We've had many, many people take advantage of this coupon code. And even just this week, there was someone who actually purchased a new custom clarinet. Now, as you can imagine, when a clarinet costs, you know, around $9,500, this is a really great savings. So it's a great, great perk to have as a listener of the podcast. And I really do hope that if you're considering a new Bakun product, you use the code Clarinet when you're shopping at bakunmusical.com. Also, thank you to Legere Reads. You know, I'm always talking about the consistency of their reads and how I really do enjoy that. Um, as you may know, I've been trying to practice every day here in a hashtag I started called Clarinet127. Um, I kind of fell off the bandwagon, no pun intended, as far as posting about this because honestly, it wasn't getting great engagement and everyone and their dog is doing 100 days of practice competition. So I, I did stop posting about it every day, but I still am trying to play every single day, um, even if I'm putting most of my efforts into guitar because that's where I'm getting most of the reward. But I've been playing and using my Legere reads, of course. And what's really interesting is we've had crazy weather here. There was a blizzard last week for about four days and then it went away and now it's melting and it's it's well above zero again. And it looks like what October should look like in, in my mind anyway. But you know what? My Legere reads have been super consistent the entire time. I can pick my clarinet up and play. And as you know, one of the things about playing sometimes is that you, you spend more time trying to put the clarinet together and sort of feel that resistance to start playing 
and it can prevent you from practicing. So I find when using Legere, I'm actually practicing more because it's just, I know it's going to work. I can even leave it assembled for a short time. Don't tell Maury or anybody else. <laughs> um, but I can leave my clarinet assembled and, you know, practice before lunch, swab it out, practice a little bit later, and my read is still good the entire time. It's also great for teaching. So anyway, I also want to just remind you that they have a bass clarinet version of the European Cut Read available now. And this is a new read. You can check it out at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G. ERE.com. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. Happy Halloween and stay safe out there.